the circular RNA that we're playing with right now, the idea that no one in the world would have identified it because they wouldn't have known where to look is, uh, it's extraordinary, right, and powerful, right? We, we hope that we're on the verge of something very big with this particular discovery. Hello and welcome to this episode of A Grey Matter. I'm Rebecca Archer. You've probably heard of DNA. You might even be able to pronounce its official name. It's deoxyribonucleic acid, by the way. And who hasn't seen DNA's famous image, the double helix? DNA is well known as your genetic code. It's what makes you who you are. But have you ever heard of RNA? If your answer was no, Queensland Brain Institute Group Leader Associate Professor Timothy Brady is here to explain, and more importantly impart why, it's so critical you understand RNA's role in the brain. Because although you might know about DNA, it's RNA that could one day save your life. Welcome to A Grey Matter, Tim. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. To begin with, it would be great if you could explain just what RNA is and what role it plays in the brain. Sure. So RNA, also known as ribonucleic acid, it's a molecule that's present in all living things and it's structurally similar to DNA. Uh, generally speaking, RNA helps to transform our genetic information into your body's proteins. But in many instances, RNA can also serve to regulate important cellular processes such as development and metabolism. And in the brain, RNA is even involved in communicating within and between cells. Are there different types of RNA and do they all do similar things? Well, the central dogma used to be for the past 60 years that it was a unilateral flow of information from DNA to mRNA to protein. And that um, mRNA really was only a, an intermediate step between going from DNA to protein. But we now know that there's many, many different classes of RNA, and a lot of them are expressed in the brain. So they do many things beyond just being a signaling intermediate. They can actually help the brain cells talk to each other. So what's the difference between DNA and RNA? Well, there's, there's a few differences uh, beyond their, their different functions. Just for example, both DNA and RNA have four bases, right? So DNA has uh, A, T, C, and G, uh, whereas RNA has A, U, C, and G. So just subtle differences in the code that's due to chemical modifications on either DNA or RNA. Um, these chemical differences also uh, affect the stability. So DNA is incredibly stable under different conditions, alkaline conditions, heat conditions, whereas RNA is a lot more dynamic. But that actually imparts some of its function and its ability to be dynamic. And finally, uh, DNA, when it's functional as, a, as our source code, right, or as a blueprint of life, it functions in a double-stranded way, whereas RNA when it functions in the brain, it's in a single-stranded configuration, which then helps it to be able to interact with other things inside the cell. So what role does RNA play in brain disease and disorders? Uh, so there's, there's lots of examples of this that are rapidly emerging. I'm just going to give you a couple. So in the context of Huntington's disease, there's a mutation in our DNA code which then, when it gets tr uh, transmitted or expressed as RNA, the RNAs, as a result of the mutation in the DNA, become toxic. 
right, because they're repetitive sequences. So that's one example in Huntington is that the RNA is literally toxic to the cell. Another example of the function of RNA, it's the, it's, its interacting partners. So in uh, motor neuron disease, the key protein that everyone is interested in is called TDB43. And when it's altered, mutated, it no longer has the ability to talk to RNA in an effective way. And when that happens, then it accumulates, but also RNA accumulates inside the cell in specific compartments. And then that also then becomes toxic to the cell. So that's an example, two examples of how RNA can play a role in brain disorders. When we look at RNA therapies, mm -hmm. can you explain a little bit about how this process works and the advantages that there might be over prescribing pharmaceuticals? Sure, sure. Yeah, so I, I guess the best example that people would be aware of right now is the COVID vaccine, the mRNA vaccine. And essentially what that is, is introducing a synthetic human-created RNA sequence that we, we know from studying the genomes of other species, you know, viruses, bacteria, et cetera, or our own DNA. So we know the sequence that can create a certain protein. So we can generate that in a lab, in a test tube, okay? And then we can take that RNA and we can tune it and program it in a way that allows us to deliver it into cells, but into different places inside the cell. So it's actually much more powerful than standard pharmaceuticals because um, with drug therapies to date, basically what happens is it's administered, it gets metabolized in the liver, some of it when it's targeting brain gets to the brain, but then it basically has to flood the brain and you hope that it hits its target in some way. But with RNA, because of the sequence context, we can actually engineer RNA to tell it to go where we need it to go, but also when we deliver it, it can hijack the cells of the body to allow it to produce itself inside the cell. So it becomes like an endogenous, self-derived therapy, if that makes sense. Are disease and disorders the only areas where RNA could be beneficial? Could it help impact standard deficits that occur, for example, through aging? Yeah, well, we're studying endogenous RNAs in the brain, and we're looking at RNAs that are expressed in the synaptic compartment. And just as an example, we found one that's critically involved in memory, and that if we turn it on and overexpress it in the brain, at least in healthy animals, we get massive improvements in cognition and memory. So you could easily see how that could be applicable to any disorder that's characterized by a decline in cognition and memory is by introducing an RNA to help strengthen those processes. Would it yeah. potentially replace pharmaceutical therapies? Absolutely. In yeah, that is the future of pharmaceuticals will be RNA-based therapies because of the sensitivity, the tunability, our ability to create them uh, in mass quantity, right? Like it's just extraordinarily, it's, a, it's going to be a quantum jump from what we think of as, as drug therapy today to commonplace therapies in the future. So yeah. how do pharmaceutical companies feel about it? I don't think they're very happy at all because they know that the selectivity that we can achieve with RNA is far superior to what is happening with uh, small molecule design right now. Mm. Interesting. Mm. It was once thought, I understand, that uh, RNA was nothing but cellular junk. Why was that? And what exactly has changed to make it a major point of exploration in mm. neuroscience? Yeah, so what changed that was probably um, 
around the turn of the century, the Human Genome Project was a big deal, and uh, uh, something called genome sequencing became almost democratized. Everybody could use it because it became affordable. And one of the biggest surprises from the Human Genome Project was that we discovered that 98% of our genes don't actually make proteins. So only 2% of all of our genes create the proteins, the things that you know of as being who we are. But 98% is active and creates RNA molecules of which we know very little about. But what we do know is that these RNA molecules that don't make protein, they are very important for different cellular functions. I'm, I'm just painting a broad picture right now, but the ones that we've started to study in the brain play big roles in regulating how genes can be turned on and off. Uh, they can control um, local cellular plasticity, right? So things happening in the synaptic compartment. All of this wouldn't have happened without the advent of next generation sequencing. So that's what's changed. The realization that most of our genome actually doesn't code for uh, proteins, that it makes RNA. And these RNAs have a myriad of different functions. How do emerging technologies impact on how we study RNA? So, so we've now evolved to what they call third generation sequencing. And now what we're able to do is study RNA in its native form. So what that means is no modifications, no chemical changes, no processing in a dish. We can take RNA out of a sample and directly sequence it. So, and it's called long read sequencing. And basically what that means is now you can get fully intact RNA species. And not only that, but you can look at their structure state, right, which is critical for their function, and their chemical state because RNA molecules can be decorated with little chemical signatures. There's over 140 of them that have dis been discovered to date, and they do many things to uh, impart a functional or functionality to the target RNA. So we can study that now using uh, third-generation sequencing, and this was unachievable just three, four years ago. Yeah. This sounds like it's rapid progress in terms of being Ex able exponential. to... Exponential. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So in, are, are you sort of watching any specific developments in terms of the technology and the advancements there that will... watching it. We're embracing it. Right. We use it in the lab. So in the last couple of years, QPI has invested in this third generation technology, um, which is really going to accelerate our ability to identify novel RNAs in the brain, under a variety of contexts. And then we're going to be able to, in which we are, developing uh, new methods to manipulate and control these particular RNA targets in the brain. You've already mentioned mRNA vaccines and the COVID-19 pandemic. What are some other examples of RNA therapies that are currently in the market? And is there any real limit to the sorts of things that it could treat? Yeah, absolutely no limit. Right. It's any RNA that you can find and discover that has a discrete function. You can mimic it, and then you can introduce it into the, the brain or into the body, and then the body's machinery will take over for you. Uh, currently, the most mature technology are called antisense oligonucleotides, and they're okay, but they're like one modest step away from small molecule therapies. So that's an RNA-based therapy, but it's still, it's, it's really well established now, but it's not the best approach people have started to harness RNA viruses as ways to deliver RNA into the brain. Folks at Caltech have been developing different versions 
of these RNA backbones that can be administered systemically, that can find their way into the brain and then find their way and be expressed in certain cell types in the brain. So that's all coming from an understanding of RNA. And what about here at um, the Queensland Brain Institute? What's mm-hmm. the role here in this environment and also, I guess, more broadly across the landscape sure. of RNA research in Australia? Well, what's happened again since COVID, the, the, the silver lining of COVID has been this broad appreciation of RNA biology and governments have started to switch on to it. Um, and of course, the failure of Australia in not being able to manufacture our own therapies was a big deal. So that has resulted in a huge investment in manufacturing capability, right? So we have one here at UQ, it's called the BASE facility, and it's for scaling up discoveries and being able to generate therapeutic quality RNA for testing. That's well, well and fine, but I think the vacancy or the void that needs to be filled is still in the area of discovery. So they went overkill across the country with a massive investment in manufacturing capability. But what they forgot about is you still need to have people who are studying the basic fundamentals of RNA biology, especially in brain. I mean, that's where we come in at QBI is that uh, we've embarked on a recent initiative to set up a center for RNA and neuroscience. And so far we have um, gathered uh, scientists from within UQ but across the country to be participants in this effort. And then more recently we've expanded that to include an international team uh, of collaborators. So we're trying to fill that void by coordinating efforts in the area of RNA discovery in brain. And then ultimately then once we have people in critical mass studying those basics of RNA and how this can be exploited to understand basic processes in the brain but also in disease, then we can tap into the manufacturing side of things which will already be well established. Um, We also have the Australian RNA community. So it's actually growing quite exponentially. And we have an annual meeting called the ARNA Conference. And that is specifically designed to bring together people in RNA research at the fundamental level, but also in biotech. And the 2023 meeting is actually going to be centered with a big emphasis on neuroscience, right, of which then QBI is going to play a leadership role in that space. And all of that to say is that we have to have folks who are studying it um, at the fundamental level and integrate with basic discoveries and then expand that into disorders of the brain. And then we can capitalize on all that effort in manufacturing and uh, uh, platforms and scale up that other institutes have started to focus on. And with that manufacturing blitz, I mean, it it Mm -hmm. sounds like a classic case of putting the cart before the horse. But I wonder, is it then very challenging to try to convince people, those that fund these initiatives, to take that step back and Mm, really start to finance the discovery aspect? Absolutely. In the first instance, even with the relationship between UQ and Moderna, they had very strict guidelines as to what they were willing to support and what context in which they would be willing to share their technology. So currently at UQ, they're focused on infectious disease and viruses and that sort of thing, or the, you know, the sort of COVID-type disorders, right? Now, they haven't really switched on to the idea that maybe we could also harness it for brain disorders. So, I mean, we're in a, we're in a tough spot right now where we have to, in most cases, have a discovery in our hands in a context related to some disease 
which we, we do in the lab. We have some examples of that. But that's, that's where the funders will then pay attention, right, rather than just telling them that we're just studying RNA biology in the brain just for the sake of it, right? So we actually have to have candidate targets. And uh, like I said, we do. We have uh, discovered, made a number of discoveries in the last couple of years. An example of that is that we've discovered an RNA that forms a circle, right? So they're, they're naturally occurring. So they, they, they actually come together end to end. And when this RNA touches itself and becomes a circle, um, it becomes very stable. So it's not prone to degradation. And what's really interesting about this is that there are circular RNAs that are expressed in neurons selectively that only hang out out in the synaptic compartment. And there, they're doing lots of interesting things, tuning down other RNAs, so fine-tuning the system, regulating plasticity. The one that we found is quite interesting is that it, it actually generates a very small protein in the synaptic compartment that otherwise you wouldn't be able to, people wouldn't have seen it because A, it's too small, and B, it wouldn't be discovered because we wouldn't have known to look, what sequence to look for. So this little RNA that spends its time in the synapse actually codes for a very small protein that is basically important for uh, protein repair. So fixing broken things out in the synaptic compartment in a localized way, this is all coming from a, a very specific kind of RNA that we've only just discovered. Tim, I'm curious about how you got swept up in this kind of research. What was your pathway to where uh, you are now? In the early days, I was interested in epigenetic mechanisms. So these are non-genomic modes of transmission and non-genomic modes of phenotypic diversity. Um, so we used to study stuff happening in the nuclear compartment. So what happens to DNA, histone proteins, and how that might change the way our genome can respond to the environment, gene environment interactions. But then around, let's say in the early 2000s, there was this discovery of RNA interference. So this is a, a, an RNA-based uh, mechanism that worms used to fight off viruses and bacteria. And at that time, it was, it, it was just a, you know, something of interest, right, a curiosity. But we decided then to say, oh, well, let's take a look to see if some of these things are happening in brain. And then around the same time, a few publications came out showing that a class of RNA called microRNA were expressed in brain, and they seemed to have some role in regulating plasticity. So we had done some sequencing experiments back then in the early days and discovered that, there, yes, there are microRNAs that are preferentially involved in different forms of learning and memory. So we kind of caught the wave of the discovery of RNA being important for fine-tuning cell function, and then we immediately jumped into, because of our background in plasticity and memory and gene-environment interactions, adaptation, that kind of stuff, then we, we wanted to look to see how RNA might be involved in that. And then we further went on to discover different kinds of microRNAs uh, that are functionally distinct. Just a couple examples. So we found one microRNA that's involved in memory. We found another microRNA that's only expressed during early development. But what it does is it sets up the patterning in the brain for it to have capacity for learning across the lifespan. So a single non-coding RNA, a microRNA, expressed during early development could influence cognitive capacity through life. Then, more recently, we discovered another microRNA that is 
only express, these are mouse models, okay, so we don't, not in humans, we're studying it in preclinical sy systems. But we found that in one genetically uh, inbred strain of mice, there's a microRNA that's expressed that plays a role in learning and memory. And then in another inbred strain of mouse that has a, a genetic vulnerability for impairments in certain forms of learning, we found the microRNA is not there. But if we introduced the microRNA that we discovered in the healthy animal, put it into the brain of the genetically vulnerable animal, we rescued their ability to learn, right? So we showed that a single microRNA could impart a therapeutic effect on a genetic predisposition for impaired learning and memory, which is quite cool. It sounds like this area of discovery research has a lot of eureka moments. Would that be right? You're stumbling on it all the time, right? We don't realize things until after the fact that it's important. So it's always fun to, to keep an eye on the data that's surprising and not in line with your hypothesis, for sure. What does that feel like when that happens, when you're in the lab and, and things go down that road? Super exciting. I mean, the circular RNA that we're playing with right now, the idea that no one in the world would have identified it because they wouldn't have known where to look is, uh, it's extraordinary, right, and powerful, right? We, we hope that we're on the verge of something very big with this particular discovery. Do you have a lot of interest from university students who are sort of deciding which area of science they might like to study? Do you sort of see this as being quite a popular course? Mm, you know, it's funny. I only really just started teaching in the molecular neuroscience program in the last couple of years. But I have received comments from students where they said that their interest in biomedical science had been, had been waning until they heard about this area of biology that was untapped in terms of RNA and neuroscience. And I have a couple students who have joined the lab as a direct result of coming to our lectures. So it's great, yeah. So we've turned people on to neuroscience, but specifically RNA and neuroscience. So yeah, so it's a great way to attract students and go into new territory. Can you explain a little bit about the impact and of course necessity of discovery research in neuroscience? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of times what happens is uh, at least in the RNA space is that these discoveries are met with resistance by the field, the people who follow dogma. There's still arguments about whether or not the non-coding RNA is a real thing. There's still people who are, even though there are hundreds, thousands of papers across multiple fields, cancer, biology, immune, immunology, neuroscience, there are still gatekeepers, we'll call them, that, that will just say, well, no, it's, it's not really um, truly important for a cell unless if you knock it out, the cell dies, then they'll believe it, right? But the brain is, you know, it's a subtle beast. It's complex and it's subtle. And what I mean by that is that the brain, because neurons in the brain don't divide, they've kind of gone down a different path from most other cells in the body where they've co-opted machinery to do different things. So lots of times, just as an example in the brain, you'll see that that molecules that are critical for the immune response are actually functioning in neurons to change a neuron's ability to respond in real time. So it co-opted similar machinery, but now using it to optimize neuron function it, during adaptation, right? People don't like to hear that. They like to have things compartmentalized. So 
what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is that discovery research is important. And one of the first steps that we have to get over is, is the resistance in the field to things that are uncomfortable and novel or that there might be multiple directions that you can go from a single discovery. But then the fact that these, thing, these discoveries take a lot of time to get embedded in the scientific community, let alone be embraced by the public. Curiosity research is fundamental for everything that we see in the future in terms of translation or a therapeutic outcome. It's been such a remarkable rise in what seems to be such a short time for RNA research. What's on the horizon? Well, I mean, in terms of RNA and neuroscience, I think what's on the horizon, once we have a handle on discovering the multiple functions of different RNA in the brain, right? So how, you can, how they can control uh, localized aspects of cellular function. The next thing will be to, be to be able to harness that knowledge for high-resolution control over RNA and therefore cellular processes. And what I mean by that, so something that we're doing in the lab is to harness light as a way to, to control the temporal aspects of these molecules. So you can have light responsive RNA changes in the brain, which then can actually change the, the way the brain's functioning on a time scale that's more aligned with learning and memory. Right, so ra- rather than taking a big sledgehammer, so with small molecules and drug therapies, you have to get the drug on board. It takes a long time, hours and hours and hours, for it to find its way and then start having an effect. What's on the horizon is to be able to have these RNA molecules present in the brain, turned on and on, on and off with light. So we could use like a, a non-invasive light source, far red shifted light, which can penetrate the deep layers of the brain. And then if you have a genetically encoded RNA being expressed in a certain place inside the cells, you can then turn it on and off with non-invasive light therapy. So that's, yeah, it's kind of the, I think it's going to be the future, is to be able to integrate chemical biology with optics and then neuroscience. And then we'll have uh, tighter control over these molecules as therapeutics. It's certainly an extremely exciting area and one to watch. Tim, thank you so much for your time today. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to learn more or support the work we do here at the Queensland Brain Institute, head to qbi.uq.edu.au. I'm Rebecca Archer and that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening.